Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman. Today's show is brought to you by Audible.com. Choose from over 180,000 audiobook titles like upcoming podcast guest Smash USMLEs, Adelake, Adesina's, How to Prepare for the Medical Boards. Get this audiobook free, help out the ITB podcast while scoring a 30-day free Audible trial by going to insidetheboards.com slash audible. This is the final Match Smarter episode for this year with Dr. Aaron McGuffin, founder of Universal Notes. If you haven't listened to episode seven of the podcast for more details on Dr. McGuffin and the Universal Notes project, you should do so when you get a chance. Thank you to Doximity's Residency Navigator for sponsoring our Match Smarter series residency.doximity.com for the information you need to decide which programs you should consider for your graduate medical education. Congratulations to Anthony James, a first-year medical student at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio, which is where I'm from, for winning the $100 Amazon gift card from Doximity. As always, thank you for listening. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, rate, and review. Help us climb to the top of the iTunes charts and give us feedback on what you want to hear or how we can improve the show for you. We've made it easy. Just go to today's show notes page at insidetheboards.com slash episode 020, that's 020 with the numbers, and click the link to rate the show. Finally, I wanted to introduce Elizabeth Beeman for today's Question of the Day segment. Elizabeth completed her MD at Wright State University's Boonshoft School of Medicine in Dayton, Ohio, and she is currently a second-year psychiatry resident at the University of Cincinnati. You may have seen some of her healthcare social media blog posts on the ITB blog, like her top YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram resources for medical education. 
and stay tuned for her upcoming top figure one accounts to follow as part of our two-part figure one interview in the next episodes. Figureone.com is the Instagram of medicine. So if you haven't downloaded it, go to figure one, that's figure the number one.com or check it out on the app stores for your device. Elizabeth is the co-founder of ITB and, more importantly, my wife. I wanted to take the time to introduce her on the show, as she'll be doing even more in the upcoming months. So here she is with our question of the day. Hello, Boards Insiders. I'm Elizabeth Beeman. Thank you to Osmosis for this very high-yield pediatric question we have for you today. A two-year-old girl comes to the pediatric outpatient clinic because of a palpable mass in her upper abdomen for the past six months. Physical examination shows periorbital ecchymosis in an irregular mass which is hard to palpation and crosses the midline. A urine sample is collected, and further laboratory studies show elevated homovanillic and vanillomandelic acid concentrations. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A. Acute lymphoblastic leukemia B. Hepatoblastoma C. Neuroblastoma D. Renal cell carcinoma or E. Wilms tumor And the correct answer is C, neuroblastoma. So let's talk about why neuroblastoma is the correct answer. Our first clue in the vignette that neuroblastoma is going to be the correct answer is that we see a palpable mass in the upper abdomen of a two-year-old girl. The most common extracranial solid tumor mass that you're going to see in this young pediatric population is going to be neuroblastomas. We know that neuroblastomas are a tumor of the adrenal glands and that they are of neural crest origin. For this reason, we will see an increase in homovanillic and vanillomandelic acid concentrations in the urine of patients who have neuroblastomas. This is the most important part of this vignette. Now, if you didn't know about homovanillic and vanillomandelic acid concentrations being high in neuroblastoma, you should remember that in the future, but you still could have answered the question. There were other clues that are pretty specific for this tumor. For example, periorbital ecchymosis is pretty specific to a diagnosis of neuroblastoma. It's actually a result of the metastasis to the area around the eyes that we often see with these types of tumors. The symptoms of neuroblastoma are usually pretty mild if they are only involving the adrenal gland, and the mass is often not tender to palpation, although it may be. The most common presenting symptoms then may include abdominal distension, pale skin, periorbital ecchymosis, chronic cough, and bone pain. Central nervous system involvement can also play a role. They may produce symptoms such as urinary retention or paralysis of the lower extremities. The other thing you want to know about neuroblastomas is that histopathologically, they may include small round blue cells and homerite rosettes. That makes you kind of clue in that this is going to be the diagnosis. They are also associated with the NMYC oncogene and can be diagnosed with CT scan. To move on to the incorrect answer choices... The first one was ALL, acute lymphoblastic leukemia. It is tempting because it is seen in this patient population, this age group, but it's a leukemia and in that doesn't have a solid mass on physical exam. Another clue that it's incorrect is that the presenting symptoms of ALL are more like the other leukemias, lethargy, anemia, weight loss, petechia. Those are the kind of things that a patient would be brought to the doctor for. 
Choice B, hepatoblastoma, is a pediatric malignancy of the liver. These patients also have an abnormal lab value. It is that alpha-fetoprotein will be elevated. And another clue that this is not going to be the correct diagnosis because this patient had elevated homovanillic acid and vanilla mandelic acid. Hepatoblastoma is similar in that it also can be palpated on physical examination in the abdomen. Hepatoblastoma has an important association with familial adenomatous polyposis. Choice D was renal cell carcinoma. Renal cell carcinoma is an extremely rare malignancy in childhood, but that doesn't mean it doesn't come up on the boards. It tends to be characterized by a triad of symptoms, hematuria, flank pain, and an enlarging abdominal mass. So you are going to see the enlarging abdominal mass with both neuroblastoma and renal cell cancer, but hematuria and flank pain are much more strongly associated with a diagnosis of renal cell carcinoma. Plus, on the boards, keep in mind that renal cell carcinoma is an adult disease. Our final answer, choice E, Wilms tumor, is tempting because, again, it's seen in the pediatric population and is actually the second most common renal malignancy in this group. Ultrasound and CT will show a mass arising from the renal tissue itself, whereas with our neuroblastoma, the mass is arising from the adrenal gland. Unlike the neuroblastoma, though, Wilms tumor is a smooth tumor which does not cross the midline. The neuroblastoma, we can see that crossing the midline. Wilms tumor will only be on one side. So that's our question for today. Welcome to the final chapter of the Match Smarter series brought to you by Doximity's Residency Navigator. Today, we have our first repeat guest, which is Dr. Aaron McGuffin, um, who's going to talk to us a little bit about uh, pediatrics uh, as a specialty and uh, obtaining a residency in that specialty. Dr. McGuffin is formerly the Senior Associate Dean for Medical Student Education at Marshall University and is currently the Director of Medical Education at King's Daughters Medical Center. He received his medical degree from Marshall and completed a residency in internal medicine and pediatrics at Marshall University in 2003. He is the senior editor and founder of Universal Notes. If you don't know about Universal Notes, you should head over to myuniversalnotes.com or check out episode seven of the Inside the Boards podcast to hear uh, the interview we did with Aaron on uh, the platform and how to succeed in medical school in general. So Aaron, thanks so much for coming back. First repeat guest. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you so much, Patrick. All right. So today it's just kind of a a talk or a conversation about pediatrics as a specialty and what it takes to secure the residency you want. So let me ask you just a broad question at the beginning. What's your ideal like pediatrics resident candidate look like? I think the first aspect of, of any candidate, not only pediatrics, but, but anywhere, is that their passion for that field comes through in both their online application as well as their interview, because that to me is what's going to drive success for a resident is they clearly know they want to be a pediatrician, they want to take care of kids, and that passion will overcome any obstacles that they would have along the way. When people, let's say, are considering, maybe I want to do peds, maybe I want to do internal medicine, you yourself did a combined residency, but you practice pediatrics, correct? 
I do now. I, I practiced both for several years, then after some administrative changes, decided to, to choose pediatrics. I suppose the decision that led you to kind of focus your practice on pediatrics specifically involves a lot of the same questions or decisions that a student who would have a choice between peds and another specialty might also um, make or need to make. What kind of settled it for you? How did you decide on moving to a more exclusive pediatrics practice? The first question I have to ask myself, and and I, this is one of the questions I give to, to third-year medical students when they're beginning this process. To me, this is ultimately the first separator for me for them. And I say to them, can you imagine your career never seeing another kid again? And if they're unable to say that, then I tell them, then you have to keep pediatrics in the loop. You, you can't kick that out as a, as a potential position for yourself. And well, other specialties, you know, family medicine, ENT, radiology, I mean, there are a a number of other specialties that at least have contact with kids. What makes pediatrics stand out specifically as a specialty? What pediatrics does for me is that it is a joy to go to work every day simply because of the creative clientele that you have. This patient population. Uh, is so much fun, and it really fits for my personality. I love to laugh. I love to smile. I love to be goofy. And this is a patient population where you can do that. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I think it's interesting, you know, there's, there's a lot in the uh, social media surrounding medical education and medicine more broadly nowadays that we see uh, regarding burnout, regarding work-life satisfaction, and anything you see broken down with respect to uh, specialty, it, it always seems that somewhere near the, the lower end of burnout rates and the higher end of work-life balance satisfaction is pediatrics. And yet, when you compare that to, say, practical factors like compensation, peds tends to be the lowest. I think that's telling. Why, why is that? Well, I mean, I think what a lot of people perceive pediatrics as is a profession where most of your patients are healthy. You aren't necessarily having to quote unquote think a lot with their visits. And that 80% of your patient load especially if you're an outpatient pediatrician, is going to be minor colds, aches and pains, things that aren't necessarily of higher acuity. Sure. And while that, while there is truth to that as part of the profession, uh, to say that pediatricians think any less than any other uh, would be absolutely false. In fact, I think as far as diagnostic errors and, and, and dilemmas, pediatricians have to be even more on guard for pathology than many other professions simply because our patients are so healthy. It's our job to make sure that in the midst of the fun and the laughing and so forth, 
that we're always keeping our guard up, our antenna focused, is this child with abdominal pain have a Wilms tumor? Does this child have a neuroblastoma? Does this child have something much worse that we're just not going to commonly see? And so that, to me, is the challenging part of pediatrics that I think a lot of people forget about. Well, tell me this. Do you have an example of some particular patient or clinical experience that that you look back on in your career and think, I'm really proud of that. It gives me satisfaction knowing that I made this diagnosis or treated in this way, something of that nature? The flagship story from my career, uh, which happened about four or five years ago, uh, was a young three-year-old named uh, Maggie Holton. And and Maggie, I will say, just to assure people for HIPAA concerns, um, has her story all over Facebook and social media. Mm -hmm. So it's certainly a public story. But Maggie had been in the beach in July, and they brought her in a week after the beach in July and said, Maggie's had a fever all week and a little bit of a runny nose. So you look at that and you think, you know, why would you have a fever in July and why would you have a runny nose? She was a small child. She was thin, but she'd always been small and went ahead and sent a few things. And she ended up having rhinovirus on her viral screen. And so most of the time you would just stop there and say, well, that's kind of unusual. It's a summer cold moving on. But because of her size, I had gone ahead and gotten a few other labs. And lo and behold, she was also anemic. Uh, Her LDH was a little high. She just didn't set right with me. And so I ended up talking to one of our oncology friends. He said, I'm sure it's nothing, but send her over. And about 48 hours later, we found out she had stage four neuroblastoma. Wow. That was one of those cases where I just thank God for having that sixth sense, that insight, that whatever it is that tells us as physicians to really continue to pay attention. Because honestly, there wasn't a whole lot other than just the strangeness of having a fever. And of course, the confounding factor of her also concurrently having rhinovirus that sent me there. Yeah, Maggie's fresh on my mind simply because she has recently just had her second year of no activity of disease after her scans. And for stage four neuroblastoma to be two years out with, with, with no evidence of disease is, is really miraculous. Um, and she had done some incredible um, types of uh, therapies and so forth um, at the tertiary center. And she's doing marvelously. In fact, I got to see her in the Nutcracker uh, this past December, which again, I think brings back into the conversation why I do pediatrics. I I get to see these kids uh, live their lives in very special ways. Uh, I get to see them in in sports. I get to see them in dance. I get to see them socially and see them happy and see them succeeding, see them growing up. And I think that also should be a major factor when when people are considering their, their move to pediatrics is just how much of a a social blessing it can be to have uh, kids in your life, both in the in the clinic and outside of it. Yeah. All right. Well, that's that's great. That's awesome. So let's talk a little more about, I guess, the nitty gritty residency related um, questions that people might have. So people are on the interview trail now or just kind of wrapping it up. How would you approach the residency interview? What sorts of things should students be asking the interviewers 
and faculty at the their prospective programs? Sure. I, I think one of the first things is to, to remind the, the students that are still interviewing is you know, do not be afraid to ask the program very tough questions. And how do you do that, um, I guess, in a, in a friendly or a non-threatening way? How do you do it with tact? Right. So I think that depends on exactly what the nature of the question is. But like everything else, um, I think part of that hopefully is a social and emotional intelligence skill that has been developed during the course of medical training. Sure. Not unlike how you might ask a patient a very uh, challenging question about sexuality or something else is to just use your social cues. I mean, I think one of the questions that is a tough question to ask but it's a very important question to ask is tell me about the camaraderie of the pediatric residents. Tell me how everybody gets along here, because that is one thing that I think a lot of people, when they're finally choosing their destination, they cannot underestimate is the environment in which they will be training. Do you think that uh, they can expect honest answers to a question like that? Because I think every program at least is going to want to think that their residents have a good um, working relationship amongst uh, themselves? Sure. I, I think a couple things. One is, by, by the three-and-a-half-year mark of medical training, most medical students, just based on that, plus the fact they've just simply lived in the world, they should be able to read people. They should be able to read facial expressions. They should be able to read reactions to whether or not they are probably getting a fair answer to that question. And, and not only should they be asking that question, to the faculty, but also most residents will also get opportunities to be alone with the residents themselves. They ask the very same question, and it allows them to <clears throat> triangulate their answers to see if there's comparability. The, the other way to, to push yourself into forcing them to a answer the question is simply to say, can you tell me about a time when the residents were having some issues with each other and how your program goes about solving it? Oh, that's good. That's good practical advice. I, I like that a lot. I think that is open-ended enough to where um, you'll have the opportunity to see whoever your interviewer is, how they answer, and and get the ability to perhaps read some of the nonverbal uh, cues and evaluate how open, I guess, the program is to ensuring that the well-being of the residents, which I think is made up in large part of, by their working relationship together, kind of goes. So um, what about the specialty as a whole? I guess I'm going to ask you to <laughs> speak on pediatrics as a whole. What do you consider the three most important aspects of a residency application to pediatrics? I mean, I think one of the things that, again, I am looking for is a resident candidate who has clearly demonstrated that pediatrics is what they want to do. And I think you can look at their application and you can see those things. I mean, a lot of the people that I know have been great uh, residents that we have taken had a marvelous background, not just academically, but in their ancillary activities. Um, obviously, if they've been a big brother, big sister, um, if they have uh, been a coach for a, a, a little league team, things like that, that show that they have been very involved in kids' lives. There's so many kids' programs out there. If, if I'm looking at 
candidates, and then and there's a couple of them that have literally no outside activities dealing with pediatrics, I'm immediately going to question their commitment to the profession. Hmm. So I think that's one thing. Secondly, obviously, is have they done pediatric research? I think research is something, and I don't, doesn't bother me if it's qualitative or quantitative, as long as they have spent some time doing, being involved with uh, the pediatric faculty in a resident project or a case presentation or something um, of that ilk, I think that also adds an additional important factor to the applicant. Have they taken time in their fourth year to really lock in on some pediatric uh, work? Did they take those sub-I's and did they do some, some maybe hit some specialty pediatric areas that uh, they hadn't seen before? Those are things that get my attention for candidates that are going to set themselves apart. So you've got a commitment to the specialty as demonstrated within their application by extracurriculars. Um, you've got some research experience in pediatrics. What would be the third thing that you think people who evaluate residency applications um, really consider? Well, I think obviously you, you need to look at the letters of recommendation as well. And you need to hopefully see that they have chosen people who can really speak to the type of person they are. Obviously, we like happy people in pediatrics. We like people who can re- who can interact effectively with kids. And whether pediatricians like it or not, we still have to interact with adults too because most of these kids will come in with parents or grandparents or other caregivers. And so I'm really paying attention in the letters of application to the socialization skills and how those are described about the applicant as well. So I think those are uh, a third very important piece of the puzzle for me. Taking that third point then, if you had the option, say, of getting a letter from the chair of a PEDS department or some very well maybe known or, or respected faculty member versus another faculty member who might know you on more of a personal level, and be able to write a letter that that has that personal touch? Would you pick the notoriety over the um, personal relationship or vice versa? Yeah, absolutely not. I, I, I don't want someone who's going to write subjects and verbs, but no adjectives. Got it. I like it. You've got to have the person who knows you. Uh, you know, I don't care if they're the assistant professor of pediatrics. I will take their one-on-one observation of you clinically uh, and how you interacted with their patients, their staff, and their families over a higher level position who may not have ever really seen you in action. All right. Well, any other general advice on uh, PEDS residency application interviews or related matters? I think it's very important to understand in today's residency and today's culture that you have to be happy with what you do. And I think that's extraordinarily important. You should not be making any decisions really based on potential salaries. You should be making decisions based on happiness and the opportunity to be able to do what you love, which is to take care of patients. There are so many permutations out there of what a doctor looks like today. And pediatrics is no different. There are so many niches in pediatrics. Um, So I would not get hung up on anything other than making sure you are perfectly fit for a pure pediatric residency 
And I think your heart will take you the rest of the way. Awesome. Well, um, I will put a link to your Doximity profile within the webpage here and as well as to Universal Notes. Um, if people want to learn more about uh, Universal Notes, head over to myuniversalnotes.com. And what's going on with the platform right now? Right. We're real excited about a lot of new things that are coming on. We we do have a 14-day trial that's now in effect for anybody who just wants to get on and try the, the tool which we're excited about. Uh, we have also expanded Universal Notes into two other areas. One is for physician assistants, and another is for pharmacy students. And uh, we're very um, happy with that progress and really feel, especially uh, for our first uh, physician assistants, that uh, we have some incredible study plans for them that we think will help them to focus on their material. Uh, we obviously also have lots of complete study plans for, for the medical students as well. So um, Universal Notes, again, continues to focus on one simple thing, which is to provide the best educational platform for students that's going to improve their ability to take care of patients. And that's that's our focus. We, we want them to be smart and we want them to, to memorize the and learn the, the factoids for their for their board exams. But at the end of the day, what we are most uh, interested in with Universal Notes is that you are reading around your patients, the topics in Universal Notes, uh, patient first, reading second, and then tying those things together so that if we were to call your patient two or three days later, they would be extraordinarily pleased with your performance as a student um, in their care. And, and that's really where we go with our curriculum. Well, thanks so much for your time, and I appreciate it. We'll have to have you back on again in the future uh, to talk more about Universal Notes and medical education in general. Aaron, thank you so much. All right. Thank you so much for the, for the opportunity, Patrick. This episode's music is brought to you by Hopeless Records. That's hopelessrecords.com. The tune is Parachute off the Dangerous Summers album Warpaint. The Dangerous Summer completed their run as a band in 2013, but you should look up AJ Perdomo, that's at AJ Perdomo, P-E-R-D-O-M-O, on Twitter. He's an incredibly incisive lyricist, an active tweeter, and still involved in making music well worth listening to all of The Dangerous Summer's past albums, as well as some of the work that AJ has done on the side. So thanks, Hopeless Records, for giving us permission to use this song. Inside the Boards is in no way affiliated with the United States Medical Licensing Examination, Comprehensive Osteopathic Medical License Examination, National Board of Medical Examiners, the National Council of State Boards of Nursing, National Board of Osteopathic Medical Examiners, or any other licensing or examination body. All exam names and other trademarks are the property of the respective trademark owners. Content discussed during the program is the property of inside the boards or the attributed trademark owner and may not be reproduced without permission from the appropriate entity. Inside the boards fully adheres to the respective policies on irregular behavior outlined by the aforementioned credentialing bodies.